0: If great literature is that which exposes humankind to its darkest motives and the most sinister desires, if it confronts the reader with a sense of their own mortality, of their own humanity, and of a meaning for their own existence, then Joseph Comrade's Heart of Darkness has to be in the top 100 books of all time. My name is Tristan Teed and you're listening to The Classics Book Club today We're reviewing Joseph Comrade's Heart of Darkness. It was on this day, February 5th in 1885, that King Leopold II of Belgium constituted the country of Congo as his own personal private possession. He would exploit it, first for ivory and then for rubber, and the proceeds that he gained from such a rich trade he used to establish his reputation as the architect king of Belgium. Many of the great buildings you find in that country today are built from the money raised from his private estate, the Congo. The Heart of Darkness, although it doesn't explicitly name the Congo as the country, is all about that place. It covers main themes, predominantly greed, the avarice of man, colonialism, and death. There can be no better way to sum up Joseph Comrade's wonderful work, The Heart of Darkness, than to take a paragraph from the book itself. Destiny. My destiny. Droll thing life is, that mysterious arrangement of merciless logic for a futile purpose. The most you can hope from it is some knowledge of yourself, that comes too late, A crop of indistinguishable regrets. I have wrestled with death. It is the most unexciting contest you can imagine. Destiny, and then coming to the end of one's life, really seems to underpin the current of Joseph Conrad's work in Heart of Darkness. The story itself is no more than 90 pages long and it consists of only three chapters. The plot is, is quite straightforward. We are narrated through a story by a seaman by the name of Marlowe. He had travelled the seas on many a ship, but he was drawn to a large river that he had seen on a map, and he wanted to make his way up that river. And so he looked for a job as the captain of a steamboat to go along the river. When he finally finds himself at this place, he finds himself surrounded by trading posts which deal in ivory, and he's given the job of captain of a steamboat with the express purpose of going to find an ivory trader by the name of Kurtz, who lives the furthest point along the river, which is likely the River Congo. Initially, Marlowe doesn't have a boat he has to walk on foot for hundreds of miles beyond the rapids of the river until he gets to the trading post where his steamboat waits for him. Alas, when he gets there, the steamboat is actually already sunk in the river and he spends some time having to drag it out and repair it. What surrounds him in all of this story really lampoons the idea of colonialism. It probably comes from the experience of Joseph Comrade himself, who, as a sailor, went to the Congo in 1890, and the things he saw there affected him profoundly. And that's the thing about Marlow, who's telling this story. He doesn't just tell it like any story. He tells it with meaning. At the beginning of the book, everyone on his boat is sitting on the Thames River, waiting for the tide to change to go out to sea. And some think about the great ships and people that have sailed off from the Thames to go around the world and and colonialize it in the name of Great Britain. Each one of the sailors themselves has tales to tell from being on board a boat in the places they've been but Marlowe now Marlowe is different, and with him we get um almost a metaphorical form of life and how the majority of people just flow along on the ebb of life without a thought for where it's going or for the meaning that they have in their own actions. However, Marlowe makes us stand back and ask ourselves, what really is this all about? Just consider these um, comments from the book about Marlowe. He was a seaman, but he was a wanderer too. While most seamen lead, if one may so express it, a sedentary life, their minds are of the stay-at-home order, and their home is always with them, the ship. And so is their country, the sea. So we see there that most people, most seamen, it looks like they're voyaging, they're going here and there, but actually they're permanently at home in their ship. Their country is the sea. They may see distant shores, but they don't venture to go on to them. And in a way, that is like most people in life. They have their routine, they have their thoughts and ideas, they have their patterns of behaviour, and it's always with them. They are stay-at-home by nature, quite sedentary in their thoughts. And because of that, the accounts they tell of their life don't really have much meaning other than, this is what happened to me today. Very much like the Instagram, Facebook, social media kind of content that we find regularly on a daily basis. But now listen to what it says about Marlowe again. The yarns of seamen have a direct simplicity, the whole meaning of which lies within the shell of a cracked nut. But Marlowe was not typical, and to him, the meaning of an episode was not inside like a kernel, but outside. Enveloping the tale which brought it out only as a glow brings out a haze. So what we see here is that to Marlow, the events in life are not just simple events, but they reflect a deeper meaning to our existence as we go on. And that's what you get now that he tells his yarn to the rest of his crewmates about his trip to this river. He starts off by saying how he first wanted to get a posting in this uh, far-off land by going to um, the city of Brussels in Belgium. And actually, in fact, he doesn't say it's Brussels, but that's where he's referring to. And he calls it a white sepulchral city. So already we have this foreshadowing of death. And it's interesting that he calls it a white sepulchral city because it reminds us of Jesus' words about the Pharisees, you are whitewashed graves. You look beautiful on the outside, but inside you are full of dead men's bones. And of course, Leopold of Belgium's buildings beautified the city. But really, wasn't it built on dead men's bones? Those who were tortured and murdered and forced into forced labour in the private estate that he owned, which was the Congo. In fact, when he first goes to get his job, Marlowe First, he's in the waiting room outside the secretary's um, office, two women adorned in black and knitting with black wool, as if they're knitting like shrouds for the dead that um, Marlow will soon see when he gets abroad. And as he leaves that place, uh, he's given the Latin um, farewell bidding which means we who are about to die salute you. (laughs) So we get a a real excellent foreshadowing here of what is about to come when he enters this unknown area on the map, this unexplored area, this heart of darkness. One of the points that Joseph Comrade makes about colonialism is then brought out when Marlow is... uh, in a room with a woman still in Belgium and she's going on and on about how wonderful it is what he's doing Um, and it's being done under the guise of bettering people uh, from this savage African continent. Very much like the nations often use the guise of teaching Christianity as a means to follow behind the missionaries to conquer land. Just listen to how he puts it. He says... I was also one of the workers of this company he's talking about. Something like an emissary of light. Something like a lower sort of apostle. There had been a lot of such rot let loose in print and talk just about that time, and the excellent woman, living right in the rush of all that humbug, got carried off her feet. She talked about weaning those ignorant millions from their horrid ways, till upon my word she made me quite uncomfortable. I ventured to hint that the company was room for profit, And so here we have Marlowe recognising life for what it is. Some say that they're going over to Africa in order to better the people there, to bring them Christianity. But as Marlowe rightly points out, the only reason they're going is for the profit they can get from the ivory trade. So with that sort of backdrop... We expect things to be quite grim when Marlowe finally does arrive at his first port of call. And when he does arrive, the first trade station that he's at, there's all these very unusual holes dug in the ground or blown in the side of hills, but they're not mines. They seem to be random, haphazard diggings for maybe fossilised ivory. And then he sees a chain gang of negroes, as he as, as he calls them then, uh, being forced along a hill, ready to go and do some more work. Now, before going and meeting the station master, he complains of how hot it is, so he goes into this green glade. Listen to what he writes about what he finds there. Black shapes crouched, lay, sat between the trees, leaning against the trunks, clinging to the earth, half coming out, half effaced with the dim light in all the attitudes of pain, abandonment and despair. Another mine on the cliff went off, followed by a slight shudder of the soil under my feet. The work was going on. The work. And this was the place where some of the helpers had withdrawn to die. They were dying slowly, it was very clear. They were not enemies. They were not criminals. They were nothing earthly now nothing but black shadows of disease and starvation lying confusedly in the greenish gloom. Joseph Comrade, when writing Heart of Darkness, had seen this for himself when traveling to the Congo in the 1890s. And you get his sense of the barbarism of slavery and what colonialism and empire actually is built on the back of. And clearly Marlow, doesn't like it, although cleverly Marlowe continues to tell his story with a non-judgmental tone and so dispassionately that it amplifies the barbarism. And that's sort of juxtaposed when Marlowe moves from this glade of death to meet the first stationmaster at the first trading post to report for duty as it were and he's happily going over a ledger where just within distance he can see the glade where so many of the slaves are dying. And there seems to be this heartless attitude from the whites towards the blacks. It's here in this station that Marlowe first finds out about this man called Kurtz, who he's going to be sent to meet. And he asks about him, but this is all that he's told. He's a very remarkable person. That's what he's told. You very rarely get any information about Kurt, other than he is the most successful trader of ivory. He always hits and exceeds his quotas. He lives far, far, far up the river where no one else really goes, and he hasn't been seen for quite a long time. In fact, there's suspicions that he's some kind of god or king to the natives that far up, and they've all determined that he needs to be brought back. And so Marlowe is sent with the mission of taking the steamboat upriver, finding Kurtz, and bringing him back to base. It's at this point that a bit of um, intuition comes in, and you begin to sense that perhaps Kurtz is King Leopold of Belgium. Because there he is, this mythical figure, this great king that they think he might be up the river who brings in extraordinary amounts of wealth from his ivory and he's so eloquent and he's so admired and so feared. Now as Marlowe then proceeds up the river he comes to different stations and we get an insight into the greed of man and what's so Brilliant about its description is it's all set against this dense jungle. These men just live on the very fringes of a very dense, dark, foreboding wilderness. And yet, even though they're in such a ridiculous place, they're obsessed with just one thing money. And the reader's made to consider Am I not but a speck in all of eternity? And yet, do I spend all my days hemmed in a heart of darkness, of greed and avarice? Do I spend my days yearning after possessions and material things? Listen to what he says about ivory. And when we talk about ivory here, it's symbolic of money and power. The word ivory rang in the air, was whispered, was sighed. You would think they were praying to it. A faint and imbecile rapacity blew through it all like a whiff from some corpse. By Jove, I've never seen anything like it in my life. That sounds very like the majority of people who walk this earth. Those stay-at-home sedentary types who never leave their ship of, of thought and of ambition. To make money to prosper, to gain power and fame. And yet they're but a speck at the edge of a wilderness of eternity. So we're now confronted with greed and what it can do to us. In fact, he goes further. Amongst the traders and all these men that work out there, they all want a trade post. What does this desire for ivory do to them all? Marlowe relates... They beguiled the time by backbiting and intriguing against one another in a foolish kind of way. There was an air of plotting about the stations, but nothing came of it, of course. It was as unreal as everything else, as the philanthropic pretense of the whole concern, as their talk, as their government, as their show of work. The only real feeling was a desire to get appointed to a trading post where ivory was to be had. So there we are, you get this continually growing sense of the darkness because he's moving along the river, getting deeper and deeper into the jungle where all there is is green trees and plants either side of him, a river which can be dangerous and this overarching sky and just these little shacks of trading posts. This, we see here how Marlow, doesn't see the story as a kernel just in a nutshell, but he sees it from without, as if it were the glow giving off a haze. He's getting a sense of what it means to be. What am I doing with my life? And he explores the greed of so many around him and how it can consume them so much that they cannot see how pitiable their state is where they stand already. Then we're forced as a reader to really meditate on ourselves and our position in destiny and eternity because of how Marlowe feels as he's traveling on his boat along the river. He says, there were moments when one's past came back to one, but it came in the shape of an unrestful, noisy dream, remembered with wonder amongst the overwhelming realities of this strange world of plants and water and silence. And this stillness of life did not in the least resemble peace. It was the stillness of an implacable force brooding over an inscrutable intention. It looked at you with a vengeful aspect. We penetrated deeper and deeper into the heart of darkness. Now what does that make you feel? Let those words cause you to pause and think about where the desires of our own heart are leading us. We often get those moments in life where we stop and we suddenly get a sense of the quietness of our life, but it's not in peace. Like he says, the stillness is an implacable force brooding over an inscrutable intention. Where does this all end? When my final days come, What will I have to say for myself? Or are my ambitions, are my sinister inclinations taking me deeper into a heart of darkness like they seem to do for Kurtz or, should we say, King Leopold II of Belgium who, through his avarice, may have cost the life of 15 million people? Eventually, Marlowe meets up with Kurtz and I'm not going to spoil the story for you I'm going to let you discover that all for yourself but listen to how this seems to really satirise King Leopold II of Belgium who had made so much money from ivory speaking of ivory this is how Marlow describes Kurtz when he finally finds this bedraggled man whom the natives almost worship like a god it says it had taken him loved him, embraced him, got into his veins, consumed his flesh and sealed his soul to its own by the inconceivable ceremonies of some devilish initiation. You should have heard him say, My ivory. Oh yes, I heard him. My intended. My ivory. My station. My river. My. Everything belonged to him. But that was a trifle. The thing was to know what he belonged to. How many powers of darkness claimed him for their own. And so that's where we get to when we meet Kurtz. And we certainly get a sensation that Joseph Comrade is here striking out. At all of the kings who build empire for their own personal wealth, for their own personal ventures. And with Leopold, of course, he literally could say, my river, because the Congo was his personal possession. Eventually, though, he's forced to consider, as all of us are, what life amasses to. And Kurtz's words that sort of resonate towards the end of the book is simply this, oh, the horror, the horror. He had something to say about life at the end. But Marlowe in his narration of the story, is really challenging the reader, what can you say about life? Will you go out with a silent whimper, or can you say something with determined belief? Oh, the horror. And so we'll finish with the quote that we started with as to why you should read The Heart of Darkness. Destiny. My destiny. Droll thing, life is. That mysterious arrangement of merciless logic for a futile purpose. The most you can hope from it is some knowledge of yourself that comes too late. A crop of inextinguishable regrets. I have wrestled with death. It is the most unexciting contest you can imagine. I'm Tristan Teed. This has been a book review of The Heart of Darkness by Joseph Comrade by The Classics Book Club. We hope you enjoyed it.